Okay, let's go ahead and get started. <clears throat> All right, thank you guys for coming. Um, so today, I think it's lesson nine, uh, and then we're starting uh, progressive Christians today. So what is it that they actually believe? Uh, and, and then I guess we'll look next week at how to confront it. So because uh, there wasn't as many people here last week, uh, that's my contact information if anybody wants it for whatever reason. Phone number uh, or email. <clears throat> if you have questions or or anything at all or concerns, feedback. Anybody else need it? We got it. All right. So for uh, this lesson today, all right. This is a great resource right here. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. It's by J. Gresham Machen. Uh, this book is 100 years old. All right. I mean, not this literally one, but it was written 100 years ago. That was 1923, so it's 99 years old. So we'll round up. Uh, so yeah, Calvin Coolidge was president when this came out. So if any of you even know who that is. So <laughs> great resource. <clears throat> it's excellent. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, the force and rel relative relevancy of it is it's as though it was written like last week. Um, it it's it really hits the nail on the head. Uh, the issue of liberalism or progressivism, I'm going to use those terms interchangeably today, has not changed that much uh, in the 200 years that it's been around or so. <clears throat> um, and I would go so far as to say that if any of you ever go to any seminary or looking into one for son or grandson, uh, if they do not have this book in their theology, it's probably a seminary that's not worth going to. So uh, it's I think it's that good. So, um, and that's it right up there. Uh, and just FYI about it too, it is written at a higher grade level than what it normally put out today. So it takes a little bit of work uh, to engage your mind with it, but it is, this not, doesn't mean it's not inaccessible to you. So it is, it is accessible, it just, you have to read it slowly. Uh, this one's a little more accessible. It's also a hundred years old. Uh, called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. So it was written by a Catholic, uh, but the arguments in it are still really good and valid and they apply the same way. Uh, basically just pitting tradition versus liberalism. Uh, but they, they transfer really well into an evangelical framework. So it's also also a great resource. So uh, And it's, it's a little more personal. It's got a more personal touch than uh, Machen's. So... <clears throat> Like I said, great resources. Uh, and the, the biggest reason why I'm bringing up his book uh, is to point out that liberalism is a Catholic problem too. It's not just an evangelical problem. Uh, I've heard time and time again from Catholic apologists that Protestants are at fault for, liberal, for liberalism because we're the ones who broke the oneness of the church. That's what they're going to say, and therefore, there's all these denominations, and it's all our fault. Uh, but they have a liberal problem as well. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second when we get to famous uh, progressives. <clears throat> uh, but there are just numerous liberal priests, bishops, cardinals, all throughout the organization, and they don't really do anything about it. They don't defrock these people. They don't kick them out of the church, excommunicate them, even though they have views that are completely contrary to everything the church teaches. So it's, it's, it's their problem as well. Liberation theology actually came out of Catholicism in South America and then kind of got infected into evangelicalism. So it it's a problem that goes both ways. Right. Uh, and the, the reality is just that liberalism is the dark side of the Enlightenment. So there was a lot of great things that came out of the Enlightenment. Liberalism was not one of them. Uh, evangelicals are not responsible for creating it, but we are responsible for fighting it just as hard as earlier Christians fought against the heresies of their day. Uh, this is a quote from uh, Gresham Machem in his book on why he even was writing this book to begin with. He says, light may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but it is always beneficial in the end. The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sounds of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. 
In, uh, in the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the thing about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men fight. So this is a fight that is necessary, and it is, uh, in fact, it's the most important heresy to fight in our day. It's more important than defeating Mormonism, Catholicism, etc. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue. It is, it's like the Arianism of the earliest Christians. That's what progressivism is in our era. Do you have a question, Carrie? No? No? Okay. So let's shed some light on wisdom tonight, all right? Shed some light on liberalism tonight, amen? All right, so some goals that we want to do tonight, uh, that we want to achieve, is we want to understand what liberalism is all about and what it is that it's trying to accomplish. Uh, I'm not here to talk about uh, or to teach you about um, the liberal who truly, I'm here to talk about the liberal who truly thinks that they're doing the right thing with their views. Okay, I'm not talking about the ones who just intend to destroy the Christian faith. Uh, these are people who are, think they're doing quite the opposite. Uh, the reality is they think they're saving Christianity, but they're actually destroying it by abandoning it. Uh, and their failure is really disastrous. So... Uh, this is a quote from Gerald McDermott. He's an Anglican priest uh, over in uh, the UK. It says, they follow, he's talking about liberals, the father of liberal Protestantism, Frederick Schle Schleiermacher, who, like the Meliorists, defined true religion as experience that is not intrinsically tied to any specific doctrinal formulation. The result was then and is now a faith that is curiously non-definable and hyper-attentive to prevailing contemporary assumptions. So liberalism is actually really, really hard to nail down because it has so many different ways that it manifests itself. Uh, and, it, and it's also just, and it changes all the time because it's so focused on culture and adapting to it that just from year to year and decade to decade, there's big swings and changes in what goes on there. Uh, and this is what Wayne Grudem has to say about it. Uh, as I was reading through his systematic theology, uh, when he's talking about liberalism, he says, I think someone needs to say that it is doubtful that liberal theologians have given us any significant insights into the doctrinal teachings of Scripture that are not already to be found in evangelical writers. So he says they're, they're useless, basically, to us uh, as conservative uh, Christians, traditional Christians. Um, they don't. They don't offer anything to us as beneficial. Everything that they have to offer is negative. Everything. Uh, so that's that's the reality of it. <clears throat> uh, so what is it exactly that the, that what is the problem that liberalism is trying to solve? All right. What's the answer to the question that they're asking? Uh, it's basically what is the relationship between Christianity and modern culture, and is Christianity viable in a modern scientific age? So basically, at the turn of the 19th century, liberalism, uh, well, you have, uh, that, that's when liberalism was born, because that was when the Enlightenment was already well underway. Uh, there was an explosion of scientific thought at the time. So everybody was examining just everything, and everything was considered, just looked at through a naturalistic lens. The spiritual-minded uh People, the, the, the spiritual mindset of the medieval ages had given way to a very naturalistic way of thinking. Uh, and this, obviously, Christianity got wrapped up in this. And there were people who just autom automatically accepted the premise of the naturalistic worldview and said, well, this is going to destroy Christianity. I want to save Christianity. How are we going to do it? Uh, and the, basically, their way was to jettison all of the important doctrines and just uh, retain the essence of Christianity is what they thought they would, and they thought that was the way in which they were going to save Christianity. So it wasn't necessarily like Ill, evilly motivated. It wasn't like they sought to destroy Christianity. It's they, they literally just thought they were saving it and rescuing it from modernity, basically. Um. So to put it succinctly, they surrendered the premise of the argument to the naturalists, and in so doing, they surrendered Christianity. Uh, it's a sad irony that the very act that they took trying to save Christ Christianity from being destroyed 
actually destroyed Christianity itself, uh, at least for themselves and those who followed them. Uh, and Machen in his book, uh, oh, that's what I basically said. So Machen in his book, he, take, he draws an analogy of a castle uh, and basically saying that core Christian beliefs about God and Jesus are the citadel that are in the middle. Uh, that's where everybody lives. That's where the king is. Uh, that's, that's, that's our beliefs about uh, Jesus and God, etc. cetera. Uh, the walls around the citadel define the boundaries and the, uh, and the means by which that citadel is defended. So everything that's inside the walls is Christian. Everything that's outside the walls is not Christian in his analogy. Uh, the walls, in his analogy, are biblical authority. All right? The, the authority of the Bible is what sets the boundaries of Christianity, and it is the means by which the citadel is defended. Uh, liberal theologians, uh, by abandoning biblical authority under questions such as, uh, how can we really trust that the manuscripts we have are accurate? Or how do we know that the people who the, who the letters say were written to, how do we know that Paul really wrote Galatians, for example, or, or whatever other book? Uh, those are questions that were being asked by the, modern, my, by the modernist uh, people. It was called biblical criticism. Uh, they put Christianity in their microscope in that regard, and they said, we don't know how to defend it, therefore we're just gonna, we're gonna throw it out the window and let it go. Uh, so by abandoning biblical authority, they abandoned the only means by which the citadel could be defended. Uh, even things like this, there's no evidence that the Hittites ever existed. Therefore, the Bible is an error. It was written by humans. We can't trust it. Uh, which, by the way, there's plenty of evidence now that the Hittites did exist. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, but, but just let me ask you a question. Uh, is it easier to defend a castle when the enemy is outside the wall or inside the wall? It's an obvious answer. Outside the wall, obviously. Well, Machen agrees with you. Uh, so this is what he says about it. He says, it may well be questioned, however, whether this method of defense will really prove to be efficacious. So by basically abandoning the authority of the Bible. For after the apologist has abandoned his outer defenses to the enemy and withdrawn into some inner citadel, he will probably discover that the enemy pursues him even there. Modern materialism, especially in the realm of psychology, is not content with occupying the lower, the lower quarters of the Christian city, but pushes its way into all the higher reaches of life. It is just as much opposed to the philosophical idealism of the liberal preacher as to the biblical doctrines that the liberal preacher has abandoned in the interests of peace. Mere concessiveness, uh, concessiveness, therefore, will never succeed in avoiding the intellectual conflict. In the intellectual battle of the present day, there can be no peace without victory. One side or the other must win. So the grim reality is that it's a zero-sum game between Christianity and progressivism. Okay, it's, it's a steel cage match. Two worldviews are going in and only one's coming out. Okay, so progressivism and Christianity can never exist in the same church or, or denomination or in some one person's mind for long. One or the other is eventually going to win out every time. Uh, and once you abandon the Bible, then there's nothing stopping you from just being, from succumbing to it. Uh, and it's, and it, it's, it's then one of the great ironies of it as well is that uh, the modern people, like the atheists, the people, the naturalists, they don't care that you have abandoned biblical authority and abandoned all these doctrines. It's not enough for them that you've done that. They want to eradicate Christianity altogether. So you can fall back to your citadel and say, I'm going to still believe in God. I'm going to still believe in Jesus. Uh, and, and all those essence of Christianity, those important things, but that's, that's not good enough for them. And now you've given up your only weapon, your only, your only tool of defense. So it's, it's going to kill your faith every single time, eventually. Uh, liberal denominations never grow. They only ever shrink. Liberal churches do not grow. They, you have a church, it goes liberal, it diminishes until it eventually closes on, on almost every case. Um, or maybe you get down to very few committed who stick around. Um, that's why you have popular liberal preachers 
they crop up and they're just a fad. They're there. And once they've done destroying their flock, they have no one to preach to anymore and they're gone. They're just off the radar. Um, so it is a church killing philosophy. Um, this is also from Machen. Uh, he says, what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. It may appear further that the fears of the modern man as to Christianity were entirely ungrounded and that in abandoning the embattled walls of the city of God, he has fled in needless panic into the open plains of a vague, natural uh, religion, only to fall an easy victim to the enemy who ever lies in ambush there. I thought that was a great, uh, a great way to phrase that. So very true. <clears throat> um, liberalism fails so badly in its goals, and it's uh, so thoroughly that it's no longer Christianity at all. Uh, and then one of the other arguments that Machen makes in his book is that it's also not even scientific. Like, so uh, the modernists or the naturalists, they bring their accusations against the Bible, they abandon it, and then they just come up with some random explanation or they uh, spiritualize things. And then therefore it's not even based in reality or truth. So it's not scientific either. And then it's also not Christian. So they've completely given up on everything. <clears throat> in, in just in an ironic way. So while those who stay on the wall of biblical authority and faithfully defend Christianity have shown time and time again that Christianity truly is a defensible faith. It really is. There are great answers and there are a ton of, there's a ton of apologetic material out there now. Um, I wish we had time to cover it today. We're going to cover some of it tomorrow or I mean next week. Uh, but there's really good, solid answers to hard questions raised by skeptics. Like, how did we get the Bible? Uh, can we trust the Bible? Like, those are, there are really good answers to that, that the liberals have no answer to, while the traditional Christian does have them. So they are, you are able to defend your faith from these modern attacks, these naturalist attacks. Because uh, the city of God and that city alone does indeed have the defenses needed to ward off the attacks of modern naturalistic thinking. All right, so we only have the answers to this question. We only have the answers to these questions thanks to faithful Christians who did not turn tail and run when the monitors came down to knock down our walls. Okay, I'm grateful for the hard work and faithfulness that those people have shown. I intend to take my place on the wall with them. That's why I've been teaching this seminar, going through all these other uh, groups with their aberrant doctrines. <clears throat> Uh, and some of you are now getting equipped to take your place up here on the wall as well. Not everybody's equipped to be an apologist or a pastor. Uh, that's okay. We're a body and each of us has a different function, but the walls do need to be fended, defended so that the rest of the body can do their, play out their roles and perform their functions. All right. Uh, so the walls need to be defended. Those who abandon the wall not only end up destroying their own faith, but the faith of those whom they were charged with protecting. All right. Rob Bell, who some of you, a lot of you are probably very familiar with, is the perfect example of this. OK, he went full Denethor on us. If you guys have seen the movie, right. Abandon your posts, flee, flee for your lives. Um, that was him when it came to biblical authority. Uh, and he left. And if Gandalf wasn't there to club him over the head. All right. And take command of the church uh, or take command of the Citadel in the movie they would have fallen. The, the city of Gondor would have been lost uh, and Sauron would have won, all right? So unfortunately, right, there was, there was nobody there to club Rob Bell over the head and kick him out of the church. And now his church is just a wasteland, okay? Um, it's unfortunate and it's, it's sad. I know I'm making it a little funny here, but uh, the reality is, is that there are people who are going to hell because Rob Bell fled like a coward from biblical authority instead of fighting for the faith. Uh, and that's, that's just reality. Uh, and unfortunately, like I said, there was no one there to dismiss him and take charge of the church, take charge of the defenses there. <clears throat> uh, which leads me into the next point, which is the dangers of progressivism. Okay, it can infect anybody at any time. 
and it can affect any church at any time. Uh, Roman Catholicism uh, is a distortion of Christianity that we talked about the last few lessons, but liberalism is not Christianity at all. Uh, It is like a cancer. Okay, so there's my little meme. I'm sorry, Karen, you have progressivism. Uh, It you just it could happen. It is like a cancer that can that can hit you, and if it's not caught early, it's a lot harder to. Uh, recover from cancer if you catch it at stage three or stage four as opposed to stage one, right? So you have to be in constant vigilance to keep it out of your own heart and out of the pulpit and your church, etc. So progressivism is just a whole other animal. Many different beliefs fall under its banner. Uh, Yeah, it takes constant vigilance. And this is the area in which the vast majority of us are most likely to fall into if we're going to fall from orthodoxy. Most of us are not going to end up crossing the Tiber and Tiber River and going to Rome to become a Roman Catholic. Most of us are not going to go run off to the Mormon temple and take part in their rituals and all that stuff. Okay, uh, Some of us might, unfortunately, but the, the, the biggest risk for us is to fall into liberalism. Uh, and that goes triple for our kids, okay? Because it is being pushed hard on them by the culture. So that's just something you need to be vigilant on. Uh, <clears throat> so this is, and liberalism, by the way, is absolutely an issue in which you need to fire pastors for. Okay, staff, I don't care if it's the person who answers the mail or just writes emails, uh, just does the schedule. If they, if they express liberalism, that those are their views and they refuse to repent of it, they need to be fired from your church. Uh, it's, it's just, it, you need to be really severe with it. Uh, excommunicate people if you have to, uh, because it is nearly impossible to come back to the Christian faith after going liberal. All right, this is... Uh, from Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the, <laughs> of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So you receive salvation. Uh, but it is, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Uh, if you are a Christian and you fall into liberalism, I mean, the hope, I mean, the chances of you coming back from it and it's, it's, and it's, it, it's very, it are very small uh, and that, that's observable. It's empirical as well. Uh, there is only one denomination that has ever gone liberal and come back to conservatism, just one, and that was the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and by the way, they're having struggles again right now. They fought the fight in the last generation, and now the next generation is not fighting very well, unfortunately. So we need to pray for them. Uh, it's a domination I used to be part of when I lived down in Phoenix, Uh and there are a lot of good people and a lot of great churches that are still in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, but they, they have a fight on their hands and they really need to take it seriously. Uh, the story of how they came back from being liberal, it's a little crazy. I'm just going to cover it really briefly. Uh, but there were still enough conservatives still within denomination that they wanted to fight back. So they developed a plan which was basically to uh, concentrate their forces. So they got all the conservatives together in the denomination, and they just went church to church and community to community to each region and just shipped all these guys in, bust them in, and so they voted as a block for conservative leaders and that, that they could find in the community. So they would seek these guys out in the local community, show up and vote for them. Uh, the liberals didn't like that either, and so they started busing their own people in, and you had these small communities where you'd have like two or 3,000 people all bust in to vote on who's going to be the president of the local chapter uh, for SBC or who's going to be the pastor, who's going to be the president of this local uh, SBC uh, seminary. Uh, and like there were some crazy vote totals. Like I'm just making these numbers up, but it's 
uh, like give you a relative idea, it'd be like 1,212 to 1,197 for the conservative guy. Like it would come really close. Uh, and they did that. It took them 10 years. They went through and fired every single liberal in the denomination one at a time by just busing people around the country. Okay, and it was hard, hard work. They lost about 1,900 churches who just ejected from the denomination over it because they still wanted to be liberal and they didn't like uh, this hostile takeover, so to speak. But that's the kind of stuff that it could take, really, to, to do this. <clears throat> um, and it's, by the way, they redeemed America's largest evangelical church. It's still the largest denomination uh, in the country. Um, so, and like I said, they're having a hard time. They, a couple of conservative professors were fired from the, uh, uh, their SBCs, the Southern Seminary in uh, Kentucky, and they replaced them with liberals. That was just done last year. So that's like the three or four person swing, which I guess if you lose the conservatives and gain the liberals, it's like a six person swing on the staff effectively. And that's a big deal. So. <clears throat> Uh, so what are some signs of progressivism that you need to look for? Signs of liberalism. Uh, lowered view of the Bible. Uh, by the way, I just took these from a great article by Alyssa Childers. So I didn't come up with these myself. Uh, I just thought they were great enough that I'd throw them in up here. Uh, so a lowered view of the Bible. So these are going to be five signs. This is the first one. Lowered view of the Bible. So biblical authority is the central issue between Christians and progressives. It's, it is. That's the only fight that really matters with Catholics. Uh, it's uh, the authority issue of the Pope. Well, between us, it's the Bible. Uh, so they're going to say things. This is, this is, these are things that you're going to hear people say if they are starting to drift off into liberalism. The Bible is just a human book. I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. The Bible, con excuse me, the Bible contains the Word of God. So not is the Word of God. They're just... Things in there that are the word of God, but not all of it. Uh, those are things that you might want to listen for. Uh, feelings are emphasized over facts. Personal experience overrides biblical truth in progressivism. So you might hear things that like that first does not resonate with me. Uh, I thought homosexual was, homosexuality was a sin until I met some gay people. Or I just can't believe that Jesus would send good people to hell. So you're not basing truth off of what the Bible says, of an objective standard, you're basing it off of the way you feel. That is at the core of progressivism as well, because they've jettisoned biblical authority. All right, so, uh, sign number three, essential Christian doctrines are reinterpreted. These are red tag doctrines, if you go all the way back to lesson one. Uh, traditions, dogma, and doctrines pass through human hands and may be flawed. That is a tenant of progressivism. That's very common across the board. Uh, so you might hear things like this. The resurrection doesn't have to be factual to speak a truth. All right. It doesn't have to have actually happened. It just communicates some spiritual truth that we're going to learn from. All right. Uh, the church's historical position on sexuality needs to be updated. Uh, in fact, if you just go to like progressive, uh, I think progressivechristians.com, uh, they've been running this website now for several decades since the 90s. Uh, every couple of years they come out and update their statement of faith and it changes. So like they added stuff on homosexuality in the 2000s and then they added things on gender uh, and marriage and then they added things on um, transgenderism that just get tacked in because it adapts to the culture constantly. <clears throat> uh, historic terms are redefined. Uh, this is number four. So they use the same words as us, but they load those words with different meanings. So if you remember back to my example from the Mormons, uh, where I said it's, it's like when I went to the store, I bought a bottle of shampoo, and I went home to use it, only to find out it's full of water and there was no soap in it, okay? Uh, that's what progressives do to words. They take the word, they steal all the meaning out of it and inject their own meaning, and then they use it intentionally in front of people uh, so that you think that you're talking on the same, meaning the same thing, but they mean completely different things. Uh, <clears throat> so they might say things like, I believe the Bible was inspired. But what they really mean is just like how other Christian books or songs are inspired. They don't mean that it's like uh, the inerrant word of God, which is what we mean when we say it was inspired. 
or that it was written by God. Uh, it is not our job to talk about people's sin. It's our job just to love them. Right? So they take the word love and they take all, all the meaning that's biblical and they just add in a feel-good, lovey-dovey, non-confrontational uh, aspect to it. And then a fifth sign is that the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. So Jesus' death in progressivism is not important. We don't need to be saved from sin. We just need to improve society, and that's how we connect with God in progressivism. So you might hear things like this. We don't really need to preach the gospel with words. We preach it with our actions. All right, that goes back to uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel wherever you go, and only if necessary, use words. That is not what Paul says. Uh, it's how will they know the truth of the gospel if no one tells them? Okay, Preaching the gospel requires words. It's, it's essential. Uh, but sin, another thing you're going to hear him say is that sin does not separate us from God. We are made in his image and he called us good. So how can we be sinful and bad? Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's essential. It's a core doctrine of progressivism that Humans are inherently good, not inherently corrupted by sin, like the Bible teaches. So who are some famous progressives? Uh, Richard Rohr, some of you might have heard of him. He's a Catholic priest who is still active in the church, uh, but he is working diligently every day to destroy the faith of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Catholics. Uh, and he, he bleeds over into evangelicalism as well. Yet he has yet to be excommunicated from the Catholic Church or defrocked. In fact, he just met last year with Pope Francis, and Pope Francis says, yeah, he's fine. Like, we're just going to keep letting him do his thing. Uh, he, he's out of Illinois or somewhere in that area of the country. Uh, he's the one, well, we'll get to it in a little bit. Uh, Rob Bell, of course, who we all know, he wrote the book Love Wins. That was his coming out book, basically. Yeah, I'm a progressive. I've been lying to you all this long that I'm a good conservative Christian. Uh, that's that. Phil Vischer. So he's the guy who did VeggieTales. So uh, he's another guy who abandoned the wall. And he's somebody who I know knows better. I've heard him talk uh, in the past about how he, he did a bad, like he thought he did a bad job with VeggieTales because it was too moralistic and didn't include the gospel which I thought that's a great turn for him, you know? Uh, but now he's gone off the deep end. So he partnered with uh, Rhett and Link to create some uh, some videos for kids, like to teach them about the Bible a little while ago. Uh, and then of course those guys went off and now, now they're atheists. Uh, and he does a podcast called like, The Holy Post where he just routinely savages traditional Christians all the time and he's, pro-abortion, pro-same-sex marriage, and all those things now, quite openly. So that's the guy who did VeggieTales. Uh, William Paul Young, he wrote The Shack. Okay, that's that's uh, the book where God appears in different modes. He appeared as like a black woman and like a little girl and things like that. Uh, it teaches modalism. So that's a heresy as well. They made a movie about it. Uh, don't go see it. Uh <clears throat> Let's see. And then Frederick Schleiermacher, I already mentioned, he's the father of liberalism. So we're going to spend some time on him in a little bit. Uh, get to learn about him. But he's the guy who started this whole thing. Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, he's the guy who made liberalism popular in the United States. So he's the guy who, he's from New York. He learned this at Union Gospel Seminary in New York. And then he's, he just went all over the place and everybody... Like he's, he, everybody loved him because he had this brand new style teaching. Uh, and then so he, he, he's the one who's responsible for importing it so thoroughly uh, and injecting it into the American psyche. And then Brian McLaren, uh, he this is a quote from him. It says, Scripture faithful, faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God as human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in scripture like fossils and layers of sediment. So he thinks that Moses, like Paul knew more about God than Moses did because Paul, Paul came after Moses. And therefore we know more than Paul did about God because we, 
we have come after Paul, right? So I mean, that's just the idea is that people just naturally keep progressing in their knowledge and understanding of who God is as culture changes. Uh, that's a dangerous belief to have. Okay, it also makes Jesus a liar. So Jesus called the Old Testament scriptures the word of God. Okay, he confronted the religious leaders with phrases like, God has said to you, da-da-da, it is written, have you not read? Always referencing back to the Old Testament. The, 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 the Bible was Jesus' authority. Okay, he wasn't saying that I know more about uh, God than Moses did. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could say that, but I mean, uh, I, I hopefully you know what I mean. So he wasn't... Uh, he, he wasn't trying to change and be different from what Moses taught about God. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, prophets and other writers of the Bible did not have an inferior understanding of God to ourselves. There were things that were mysteries to them, but they didn't need to progress in their faith. Uh, like, and, yeah, the way that the, that the liberals talk about it. A uh, few more. Uh, Bart Ehrman, he's probably the most famous progressive that's on here. Uh, Brian Zond, so he's a so-called pastor in Missouri. And his big thing is helping people walk through deconstruction without losing their faith. That's what he thinks he's doing. Uh, Audrey Assad, she is a singer. Uh, I used to listen to her music. Me and my wife really loved her music. I mean, she was a Catholic, but she met uh, Richard Rohr, or she read his book, and now she's abandoned the faith entirely, and now she's a progressive Christian, and she's just adopted the whole uh, cultural acclamation thing, unfortunately. Uh, and now she helps people walk through deconstruction as well. Marcus Borg, uh, J.D. Greer, question mark. Okay, so he was the guy who was the head of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not going to just come out right out and say he's a liberal. Same with Tim Keller. With the Gospel Coalition, there are warning signs with Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition and J.D. Greer. Uh, so I'm not willing to just throw them under the bus, but there are things that you need to watch out for. And if they're not careful, they're gonna lose their ministries. They're gonna lose their faith. So uh, just throwing out things like, uh, is it really all that wrong to say that abortion is sinful? Or that we shouldn't, shouldn't we be more sympathetic and understanding homosexuality? So they just throw out those little feelers, and that's those are the warning signs to watch out for. And then Hugh Ross and Francis Collins, uh, those guys are both really big on importing Darwinism into the Christian faith. They have a whole ministries involved in, uh, dedicated to it, reasons to believe, and uh, biologos. Uh, these, they, I mean, they express all kinds of heresies. Like they deny the historicity of Adam, which is a whole doctrine that. Salvation is built upon in Romans that Paul spends chapters building on that the reality that Adam was a historical figure. Uh, so they're basically they're the gateway drug to progressivism. Uh, they want to then they take that evolution creation debate and they try to make it palatable to Christians and then it puts them on the track towards shipwrecking their faith. So those might be controversial uh, influences. Well, somebody I didn't put on there, but N.T. Wright. So he's another bit of a question mark. Um, he has the new perspective on Paul, doesn't hold to justification by faith in the same way that, uh, that we all do, that we think the Bible teaches. So there's definitely some warning signs there as well. Uh, and somebody who's not on that list is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I didn't put him on there. He started out as a liberal theologian. He's from Germany, uh, and he was a pastor. Uh, he is different from all the other liberals. So even though he died without having uh, fully progressed orthodoxy, like believing in the virgin birth, etc., which normally I would say precludes you from like genuine saving faith, the, the thing about him is he was going the other way. So he was liberal. And he was making his way towards conservative orthodoxy over time. Started with his realization of grace uh, after he came to America and learned, heard some good preaching for a change rather than what he was hearing and learning in Germany. Uh, and, and so I, I don't know. I, I mean, I hope to see him in heaven someday. And I think very think that, it, that we will. Uh, so he's, he's somebody, yeah, like I said, who was liberal going, and even at his, even at that time as well which was 
World War II. This was like the pinnacle of liberalism in Germany. Uh, so the fact that he was going against the grain there really gives me hope for him. Uh, and something I didn't mention as well. So Germany is the birthplace of liberalism. Uh, it's also the birthplace of the Reformation. It just came about 300 years after the Reformation. Uh, but it's, it's where all the bad stuff originated from. And then Billy Sunday, he was a ball player turned evangelist in New York City uh, in, during World War I, that time period. Uh, he preached in a sermon. He said, if you ever pick up hell and turn it upside down, you're going to find made in Germany stamped on the bottom of it. So uh, just because that's where all the bad stuff was coming. It had theological and political weight at the time uh, because we were at war with Germany. So there was there was that. So it has a little double meaning there. So quick, a really quick history of liberalism, where it came from. So Immanuel Kant. So he was a philosopher, easy for me to say, from 1724 to 1804 was his lifespan. He was the precursor to modern liberalism. So he wasn't there uh, because he really wasn't a Christian. Uh, he was just a, phil like a, a philosopher. Uh, he lived in Connersburg, Prussia, his entire life. Like this guy lived to be what, in his 70s? And he never once left his hometown. Literally never left the city limits of his town. So a little bit of a strange guy. Uh, he said that religion within the limits of reason alone so we can only know things about faith based on what we can observe in our world. Uh, reason to him meant that you were limited to knowledge of what you could perceive with your own senses. Uh, he came up with the categorical, categorical imperative because obviously he knew if I'm jettisoning faith, basically, and I'm limiting everything only to the natural world, how do we keep people from stealing and murdering and doing all kinds of bad things? So this was his way of... Uh, Defining morality, which was basically do your duty for the sake of duty. So good job, Manuel Kant. Uh, this idea is not biblical. The fact that you just do things purely for altruistic means without any hope of gain is, is just not what the Bible teaches anywhere. Uh, you, the Bible talks of being rewarded for doing good things all the time. It's not how you achieve salvation, but there are other rewards apart from salvation that you can be given based on faithfulness to God. Uh, if you've ever heard the notion of, well, if everybody did what you're doing, would you think that would be a good or bad? Okay, if everybody ran a red light, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? So if you just take a principle and universalize it, that'll help you to figure out if it's moral or immoral to do that action. That's Immanuel Kant right there. That came from him. Uh, he also taught something called the noumenal realm. Uh, he said that's an invisible realm that can never be known with certainty. We don't know what goes on there at all. But we know that it exists because we can sense that it exists. So I think that just goes back to Romans 1 that we all know, right, that there's a God. He sensed that. He knew it. He had no way to prove it. He just said that it exists, but I can't know anything about it, so I'm not going to worry about it at all. So you can see where liberalism really did come out of out of this guy. So he's the one who set the philosophical framework for liberalism. And then along comes a guy named Friedrich, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Uh, he lived in Germany as well. Oh, that's the, yeah, if you, if you turn hell upside down, you will find made in Germany stamped the bottom. So Billy Sunday. So he's the guy who started liberal theology. Uh, he developed this whole idea that we need to save Christianity by basically just preserving what Christianity is in essence uh, and determine everything else by subjective feeling rather than based on the truthfulness of the Bible. And then Harry Emerson Fosdick that I already mentioned, he's the guy who popularized it in the United States. So he took Schleiermacher's work and then preached it very uh, charismatically all throughout the country. Um, so let's just spend some time delving into the characteristics of liberalism. So what exactly is it? So this is also from Machen's work, uh, the Christianian Liberalism book. It says, in the sphere of religion, in particular, the present time is a time of conflict. The great redemptive religion, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief, 
which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. That's what I mentioned earlier as they load those separate meanings into the words that they're using. The modern non-redemptive religion is called modernism or liberalism. Both names are unsatisfactory. The latter in particular is question begging. The movement designated as liberalism is regarded as liberal only by its friends. It, and to its opponents, it seems to evolve a narrow ignoring of many relevant facts. That's really true. Uh, and indeed, the movement is so various in its manifestations that one may almost despair of finding any common name by which to apply all its forms. But manifold as all the forms in which the movement appears, the root of the movement is one. The many varieties of modern liberal religion are rooted in naturalism. That is, in the denial of the entrance of the creative power of God, so they deny the supernatural, as distinguished from the ordinary course of nature in connection with the origin of Christianity. So they deny the supernatural, but it's all just naturalism. So they accepted the modernist premise. It's basically what it means. And then they still try to hold on to vestiges of Christianity. Uh, liberalism is, uh, these are going to be seven or eight tenets that I have here. Uh, liberalism is a man-centered religion, not God-centered. The Bible is considered to be mainly a human book. It's fallible human. It's a fallible human record of religious thought and experience. It does not contain the words of God, or we can't know for sure if it does, if you want to be more precise. Uh, it's subject to human criticism. Uh, and famously, there was like the, the Jesus seminar where they took the Bible. This was Marcus Borg, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then they hashed out everything in the gospel and what did Jesus actually say, all right? So they came out with like one verse. This is the only thing in the Bible that Jesus actually said, in their opinion, based on their human criticism. Uh, supernatural elements are rejected as hey, historical. Miracles don't exist. They just inherently do not exist in their worldview because you can only, it's based only off of what you can observe in the natural world. That's all that's available to you. You can't know the spiritual at all. So the Bible is not the test of what is true. Human experience is the test of what is true. This is our core belief that is going to be common to all of them uh, who are liberal. Earlier progressives said that doctrine was not essential. Modern progressives take it even, even further and they just say that doctrine is unknowable altogether. So it's, they're progressing, right? Or you could say they're regressing. Or I think the biblical term would be they're transgressing. Anyways, uh, biblical authors such as Paul or Moses had a degree of understanding about how about how about who God is, but now we have more insight than even they had. So we've progressed. So Paul didn't know that homosexuality was actually a good thing, so he wrote against it. But now we know better because we are further along than Paul, so we are better than him. That's what they're going to believe. Uh, worldview, the dominant worldview is naturalistic, not biblical. Uh, the natural world is all that we can know for certain, and that is all we need to be concerned with. That's it. You don't need to be concerned with the spiritual because uh, we can never truly know when or how God is speaking to us anyways. Uh, our understanding of what God wants from us progresses over time, and that's expressed mostly through cultural norms. So when the culture changes, that's God indicating to us that he's changing, he's progressing us in our understanding of what he wants and who he is. Um, so what do they believe about God? Uh, they believe that God loves all people. He does not have any wrath against our sins at all. God does not necessarily work in individuals, but rather through cultural developments in history. Uh, therefore, our beliefs should adapt as the culture changes. Cultural change Changes are thought to be discovering new truths about God and the world. So you're discovering new things. Uh, since we cannot know spiritual truth, adapting to cultural change is how we connect with God. All religions serve and worship the same God, just in different ways in which God has moved in them. Uh, and as a caveat too, the only faith that really angers liberals is traditional Christian belief. They'll accept anybody else. They'll accept Buddhism as being on the path to God. They'll accept Islam as being on the path to God, even though Islam is very 
are strict on certain things, right? Like you're executed for being homosexual and, hom- and hom- for being homosexual in Muslim communities all over the world. Uh, and and they, they, they accept that because they're just going to look at them and say, oh, they're just at a different stage in their development. They're not as progressive as us yet. They'll get there eventually. God's just working with them at a different rate. That's, that's how they look at it. Uh, but they look at people like us who they say are refusing to progress. We're being stubborn in our ways, trying to appeal to the Bible, which is a human work. And that's why they get so angry. It's the only, uh, it's the only group that they really despise and will openly show scorn for. <clears throat> uh, so theology is simply human ideas and understandings about God. That's all it is. It's not, it's not a way of expressing truth. So what do they believe about man? Uh, humans are inherently good, lacking a sin nature. The idea that humans are sinful creatures who are, guilt, who are guilty before God and subject to his wrath, that's abhorrent to them, that idea. They really hate that idea. Because it, uh, it's, it places, places emphasis on them that they're sinners. And nothing makes people more angry who are unregenerate than being told that they're sinners. It's... Uh, a doctrine that people really hate. So, uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus was not God. The virgin birth was rejected because it's supernatural. The idea of Jesus returning is also rejected because he's not God. We don't need to be delivered. We're not looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth. We are achieving that here in this world by progressing. So there's no need at all for Jesus to return at all. Uh, Jesus was not a savior who paid for our sins. Uh, Jesus was a great moral teacher in his life and example for us to follow. That's all that they believe about Jesus. Uh, Salvation does not come through trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Salvation comes through human self-improvement and the improvement of society. And this is what they really regard as the essence of Christianity. This is what they they boiled it down to all those those years ago was uh, it's just we're always just trying to get better. We're trying to improve our lives, and we're trying to improve society around us. So that's, that's the important core of Christianity that they think they need to defend. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement is horrifying to them. Uh, you even hear it commonly referred to as cosmic child abuse. You've probably heard clips like that of people saying things, uh, in that, at least in that vein. A loving God would never impose such a penalty on anybody. Just remember, he's loving. He doesn't. Uh, punish sins. He just helps us to progress and get better and better. That's all he's there for. Uh, The kingdom of God is not about delivering us from sin, but about delivering us from societal evils, such as poverty or famine, etc. Pietism. uh, So they have the label of being pietists because they're always trying to uh, be good, you know, at least outwardly. Uh, They call it pietism. So pietism is bad. The idea of you're only trying to look good, uh, but piety is good, right? Being good and doing, being holy before God, uh, that is good, but pietism, pietism is bad. Uh, this is a quote from a guy named Gerald McDermott. Uh, he's that Anglican priest I mentioned earlier, uh, or quoted from earlier. It says, these days, the most common temptations are to argue in neo-pietist fashion that doctrine and morality are finally unimportant as long as believers experience warm feelings about Jesus and engage in ministry to the world and to reduce scripture to the human expression of religious experience, finding revelation somewhere other than in the biblical text itself. This reduction suppresses scripture's own claim for itself as words taught not by human wisdom, but by the spirit. Uh, So that's... Salvation, and then the church. What do they believe about the church? The church is not the fellowship of redeemed, regenerated people, the pillar and buttress of the truth, where pastors are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and to be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's not what they believe. Uh, That's, in fact, antithetical to what they believe. Uh, Rather, the church is an association for human self-improvement. That's what it exists for, uh, just self-help. They provide self-help resources. That's, that's what they think it is. 
Uh, it, the church should not seek to evangelize individuals, but should seek to renew society. They should just help up the community. Uh, there should not be any doctoral boundaries for its leadership at all. Anybody can be whoever they are and believe whatever they want. It doesn't matter. And then uh, to end, let's just talk about deconstruction a little bit. This is a phrase that has become popular in progressive circles, and it, the word has even started to leak over into conservative circles as well. Uh, they say things like, uh, we just, we're just asking questions, okay? Uh, and that's what's really important to them is just asking questions. Uh, and they'll, they'll, when you respond like, hey, what's the point? Why are you afraid of those questions? Huh? Are you afraid? Like you uh, don't want to, you're afraid that you're going to lose your faith, etc. You're afraid you're going to find out things are not true. They kind of taunt you with it a little bit. Uh, but the reality is that Christianity can withstand their questions quite easily in a lot of cases. So the question that I want to ask back to them is why are you afraid of the answers? Because they don't ever want the answers. They're not honest questions the vast majority of the time. Uh, deconstruction is a bad thing. Okay? The good thing is reformation, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, so are, you, are your questions honest or are you simply making an excuse to not believe in God? Well, I have these questions. Well, here are the answers. Well, I didn't want those answers. I just wanted to not have to put my faith in God. Uh, this is a quote from G.K. Chesterton because uh, they, they'll often say things like, you just need to have an open mind. You're just you're clo too close-minded. Well, we're the open-minded ones. Uh, he says that merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. So open your mind, that's great, but you need to close it again, right? When I say something, I don't leave my mouth open afterwards, right? Or I don't put some food in my mouth and then just leave my mouth hanging open, right? The point is to close it. Right? And uh, yeah, you get the idea. Uh, liberals seek to provide a space for Christians to examine their beliefs, to reinterpret their beliefs, and even to abandon their beliefs. They think that's a good thing. Uh, they do not encourage you when you're going through this process to look to the Bible, but they rather to look to your personal experience. So this is Brian Zahn and Audrey Asad. This is the thing that they're pushing really hard on people. Uh, and they think they, I mean, they seem to really think they're doing a good thing, uh, but it's, it's a great evil. Uh, abandoned beliefs often include penal, substitution, penal substitutionary atonement and marriage. Uh, let's go. There's a verse uh, from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Okay, when you break it, when you are loose about it, when you have loose divorce, uh, or, or I should say easy divorce, or if you accept polygamous marriages or same-sex marriages, you are breaking that picture. Okay, to reject marriage in some ways is to reject the gospel itself. They are very closely connected because this is the picture that God set all the way back in Genesis between the first two people, that's going to be the picture of how he relates with, with us. So it's, it's, it's a big deal. So when you deny those, when you deny marriage, which is uh, just par for the course in liberalism today, uh, it's, it's not just a small thing. It's a really big thing. Uh, deconstruction versus reformation. Uh, so deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. Not in their view. So Martin Luther, they say, was the ultimate progressive, is what they, uh, you hear it said in, from their pulpits and in their books. Uh, but Luther did not seek to deconstruct the church. He sought to reform the church. It's the reason why we call it uh, the Reformation and not the deconstruction. Because right? he wasn't trying to destroy anything. He was trying to build something up and restore something. Uh, by the way, so like for me, like I used to be hyper charismatic and dispensational in my theology. I used to also believe that America was the new Israel and that God was working with us today. All right. I'm not proud to admit those things. Um, they're kind of dumb. 
But I'm trying to draw a distinction between somebody who is reforming their faith and actually growing and being changed by the Bible, because I'm appealing to that as my authority, and so my beliefs change, uh, versus somebody who's de deconstructing is somebody who is not appealing to the Bible. They're appealing to themselves, and they're destroying their faith. So deconstruction is not a good thing when you hear that word being thrown around. It's not a word that we need to redeem. It's a, a word and a process we need to outright reject and fight against. Uh, deconstruction is just the tool that liberals are using to destroy people's faith, unfortunately. They think, they think they're doing good. They think they're preserving your faith by doing it. Uh, but it's, it's amazing how blind they are on that regard. Uh, the claims of Christianity have stood very strong for over 2,000 years, even longer than that if you want to include the Old Testament. None of the biblical criticism that has been leveled at it by the modern movement has been able to weaken it at all. It has only strengthened uh, the, like the claims of Christianity. So I'm just going to end with this quote. Uh, this is also from Melissa Childers. <clears throat> it says, As Christians... The process of evaluating our beliefs, traditions, and church culture in light of scripture and rejecting any unbiblical beliefs with the goal of living more authentically, authentic, authentically as Christians should be a, a daily reality. But this is not deconstruction. It might be rightly called reformation, restoration, or even healing. So, any questions at all about that? I know I went kind of fast, covered a lot of ground there. Everybody clear on uh, the tenets of progressivism and the dangers of it? Yeah. The only thing I wonder about is the whole losing your salvation. Uh, you know, because <clears throat> I even have relatives that have seemingly both of my, two of my nephews uh, were going to go into the ministry. Now, uh, one is becoming very progressive, and the other one has declared himself an atheist. Um, and, you know. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, I would not say, I mean, as a you know, reformed Calvinist mythology, uh, that you don't lose your salvation. It's just evidence when you walk away, you've been exposed to the fullness of the gospel that you were not really one of us to begin with. Uh, so when I, when I quoted from Hebrews, it wasn't necessarily to say that someone can walk away per se, it's uh, that somebody who's been exposed to the fullness of the gospel and then rejects it. But that's, that's not something you can come back from, spiritually speaking. And that, it's a hard teaching. Uh, it's something that definitely takes time to accept and marinate on, but I think it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty clear scripturally. So does that I mean, help you at all? Or, or do you have any other follow-up questions? Well, no, I've heard that from Joel. Oh, of course, too, yeah. But it's confusing to see it played out in people that you care about. Yeah. It's really, and to say there is no chance of them coming back, I mean, would you say that? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know to the, to the degree that they were exposed to the fullness of the gospel, uh, but it's always very concerning to me when I see somebody who is proclaiming Christianity and then falls away. Uh, I mean, it, please continue to pray for them, continue to witness to them. Because ultimately, you don't really know. God is the one who does know. And uh, just, yeah, hold out hope for it. Seek it in prayer. Yeah, and I'd also give my example of my brother, who was the first person to become a Christian in our family. Um, I don't know, he became kind of, he got a degree in what was called St. Paul Bible College. And he went there, and that was on college. And he was uh, kind of disillusioned after. I don't know, I kept saying, where are the promises of God? I think he thought his life should be going better. And so he fell away for nine years. And then he came, he came back after my mother died. And Praise God. Yeah, so 
so you know it, it's it's confusing to you know see that played out in people's lives and wonder how this all works. Of course, I mean ultimately you don't know who the elect are until I mean until you find out. <laughs> I mean uh, when they come to faith in the Lord or when they reject it, uh, and it's, yeah. So, <clears throat> any other questions, comments? Okay, uh, let's go ahead and close out in prayer. Hey, sorry. Oh, this one? 99 cents? Oh, great. Well, nice and easy off of, uh, off of Kindle there. So it's worth the 99 cents. So and take some time to read it. It really is. So yeah, he, he explains it far better than I can. So this is just my summary of what he, what he taught. Basically, this, this lesson comes from this book, more or less. So, all right. Uh, well, God... And we thank you that your word is true. And we pray, uh, well, we thank you that you have set up a wall around us, around the faith, and that your word uh, protects us, keeps us safe. Uh, it defines the role that you have for us. It lays out the boundaries of our lives and the things that we are to believe. It teaches us how to come to know you and how to be saved and how to spend eternity with you. Uh, we thank you for your Bible, and we just ask, God, that you would uh, open the eyes of those around us who have rejected biblical authority and have succumbed to progressivism. Bless them. Help us to uh, reach out to them with your word and that they would open their hearts uh, to receive you through it, that they would come to see your truths that you expressed in your word, which is good and beautiful and a lamp to our feet. In Jesus' name, amen.